Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, kids, the kids are going to go into that room right over there and have uh, kids' church. So all the children are invited to go in that direction and uh, enjoy something much more lively and entertaining than the snoozer that's about to happen in this, in this room. Okay. Good morning, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Happy Advent, you bunch of snakes. How do you like that? You like that? Have you ever noticed how in Advent we always get a big dose of John the Baptist? Every Advent, the, the world out there is, is, is saying happy, I mean, happy holidays and Merry Christmas and all the songs are, are this festive joy. But the church puts the people that are coming to the church through two doses of John the Baptist, one this Sunday and one next Sunday. We get this weird, bug-eating, hair-wearing man yelling at us, calling us names two times right before Christmas. And when we encounter him, uh, he, he, he tells us, it's, it's like a wake-up call, because it, it's, it's supposed to fill us with, with fear, I think, when he, when he tells us that we're a bunch of vipers. Uh, but, and, and so we, we're not allowed to just jump to Christmas. We're not allowed to be there yet. And I think the church does that on purpose, because we already know, as people that come to the church, we already know the end of the story, don't we? We know who the baby is that, ha- that comes on Christmas morning. And so we can already be there in our hearts and our minds as we come into December, after, especially with the world putting all Christmas up everywhere and, and stuff. But back then, here's the thing, back then, when John the Baptist was first appearing outside of Jerusalem, nobody had any idea what was coming. Nobody had any idea. God had been silent for 400 years. And the people of Israel had been without a prophet in their midst for that long. And then suddenly there's a man that shows up looking very much like a prophet, behaving very much like a prophet. And it had the people thinking, what if God is about to do something in our midst today? Mm. Nobody knew what to expect. What must it have been like for them? What must it have been like to have no idea who's coming? To have no idea that a baby had been born that was going to change the world forever? Well, this morning, let's try to get a sense for that, just a little bit. Let's, let's try to forget just for a few minutes about the angels and the shepherds and the baby in the manger and hear, uh, as if for the very first time, from this prophet from God. Because what his words say to us really matters. Because in them, we find out who we are, we find out who it is that's coming, and we find out what we should do about it. We find out who we are, who's coming, and what we've got to do. So go ahead and grab your Bibles or your bulletins, and let's look together at Luke chapter 3. I put the verse numbers in the bulletin this Sunday so you'd be able to see where I was, because we're going we're gonna to look at this passage, and I'm going to tell you verse numbers to look to. All right, so who are we, according to John the Baptist? Look at verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, so according to John the Baptist, we are a brood of vipers. And you know what that is? That's a bunch of baby snakes. 
And, and he says that, that, that they are fleeing from the wrath to come, which means we are a bunch of baby snakes trying to save our skin. That's what we are. Now, if you're not clear on this, let me help you out. When a prophet calls you a bunch of snakes, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. You don't want to be called a bunch of snakes by a prophet. Bad news. Okay, so that's a bad thing. But look, if you look down at verse 18, look at what verse 18 says right there at the end. So with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. The good news? I mean, how is that good news to have been called snakes by a prophet? How is that good news? Well, this is why it's good news. It's good news because before any of us can accept Jesus as a Savior, we have to admit and know and acknowledge that we need one. Does that make sense? We've got to face the fact that we need a Savior. Before Jesus can save us, we've got to admit that we need saving. We've got to acknowledge that our situation apart from God is desperate. It doesn't do any good for me or for you to sit in church week after week thinking that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is a true thing, but that doesn't do us any good if we are always thinking of sinners, those people out there that we don't associate with, that they have nothing to do with us. That's not, that wouldn't do us any good if we believed everything true about God, but then thought that what he meant by the word sinner was those people on the outside murderers and rapists and criminals. Because what that misses the point that John was making entirely. And that point is that you are a sinner. And that's why it's good news. Because John is telling us the truth. And he doesn't let us continue to believe a lie about who we really are. He doesn't let us sit here content in our sin. He warns us. And he calls us names so we can get our attention. So that he can so that we might take stock of our lives. All right, look at verse 16 and 17. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. With this scary image, John challenges us to look at our lives on every level and to take stock. Am I wheat in the Lord's storehouse? Or am I chaff, just taking up space, ready for the fire? Don't you love the way this sermon's going so far? Just happy, happy, happy. Welcome to Merry Christmas world at the Anglican Church. All right. But are we wheat? Or are we chaff? He calls us to take stock. For many of John's hearers that day, it would have been easy at that point to feel very confident about who they were in God's storehouse. They were wheat, obviously, because after all, they were Jews. They were God's chosen people. Obviously, the Gentiles were chaff, obviously. And so, but John the Baptist, see, he won't let them think that for even a minute. Look at what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You're not allowed to say that. When God's coming, you're not allowed to say, hey, but we've got Abraham, right? 
That's not the get into, get into, um, get into heaven free card. Because he says this, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. There's some perspective. You have Abraham as your father, good for you. These stones could be Abraham's children. That's not impressive. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John tells them that it's no good to say that you've got good connections or good roots. It doesn't matter that Abraham is your father. That is of no account. The stones in the ground could just as well be children to Abraham, he says. What matters is the kind of person you are. Not that you go to the right church or that you belong to the right group. What matters is who you are deep down at your very roots. God doesn't look at your connections or your accomplishments. He looks at your heart. Remember, we just said it a minute ago. All hearts are open to him. All desires are known to him. From him, no secrets are hid. God knows who you really are. He looks at your heart. So who are we? John the Baptist tells us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. Every last one of us. And he calls us to take, to take stock of our lives. Now the next thing he tells us is who's coming. Who has seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe? Good, good. Have you all, have you all seen it? Are you not allowed to see it? Because you need to see it. It's a great movie. <laughs> Anybody else seen Gladiator? You've seen it? Yeah, I mean, it's an impressive movie, right? All right, do you remember the scene when, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Commodus and Lucilla are making their way to the battlefield. Remember, Maximus, that very impressive leader of the Roman armies, has just unleashed this crazy assault against the, the barbaric hordes that are, that are up there, the Germ Germanic people. And, uh, and then after, the, after the, the war, the battle is over, here comes Commodus and, and Lucilla. And they're going to come, and they're going to be with their dad, Marcus Aurelius, at the front lines and see the battle. Now, do you remember, if those of you who have seen it, do you remember what their carriage looked like when they arrived at the front lines? No. It's okay. I'll tell you. Because it looked like it was a golden, gilded, uh, armored RV. I mean, it was this huge, um, you know, 50-passenger bus that had uh, rooms in it and just all sorts of opulence and amazingness. But somehow they'd ridden this this uh, carriage all the way from Rome up into Germany uh, on roads that had been paved for them to get there, okay? It was an amazing thing. It had been paved just for them, just for the, the emperor. See, the emperor, the, the emperor didn't just go through the woods. The, the army had to go out in front of him and make the way for him to come. That road led all the way back to Rome. How many people did it take to make a road like that all the way up to Germany back then? I mean, think about all the labor involved in getting all the rocks and the boulders out of the way. They filled in all the ruts and they smoothed out all the bumps so the emperor could travel on a smooth road. And they didn't do this kind of thing for just anybody. This is something that they would do only for the emperor. Only a king gets that kind of treatment. Now, Back then, if your town or village was told, hey, you're going to be visited by the emperor next year, 
two things would happen. One, you would be amazed at the honor. You'd be overwhelmed that the emperor was going to come. And then two, you'd be scared out of your mind because what's he going to do when he gets here? Is he angry at us? Is that why he's coming? And so you know what you'd do? You'd send out all your people and you'd be like, you know what? Let's at least make the path straight for him. Let's make the roadway smooth. Let's get the boulders out of the way. And we're going to make it so that this king who's coming can have an easy way into our town. So we'll know that we knew he was coming, that we were paying attention, and that we wanted him to be nice when he got here. All right. That's what you would do to prepare the way for the emperor to come. Read with me, if you will, verses 4 through 6. The word of God came to John in the desert. As it is written in the book of the words of of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Folks, when the emperor comes, you remove the rocks and you remove the boulders. You fill in the ruts and you smooth out the bumps. But for this king who is coming, it's not rocks being moved out of the way. Mountains are being brought down. I mean, does that kind of give you a sense of the difference in who's coming? If the emperor is coming, you fill up the ruts in the road. But for this king, you're filling up valleys. Do you see what's happening here? Who is this king who is coming? John is telling us to prepare for a king that requires us clearing out mountains for him when he comes. This is the king of all kings. This is the Lord of all lords. He's God Almighty, the maker of heaven and of earth. Is that who you are expecting and waiting for this Advent? Because if it is, then tell me, how are you making those paths straight? How are you preparing the way? Are there paths in your life that you expect him to follow? Are there rules and requirements you have for how God has to behave in order for you to receive him? If if that's the case, then you're not really expecting God Almighty to come this Advent. Because this king does not go around your corners. He does not follow your paths. He doesn't climb over the mountains of your conceit and self-importance, nor does he travel through the narrow valleys of your preconceived notions and requirements. This king will travel on roads that have been prepared for him. How are you preparing for him to come into your life today? Who is coming? John tells us that that the one who is coming is none other than the Lord, God himself. And see, we've heard the story before. So this doesn't shock us like it shocked them. But they had never heard anyone talk like this. They had no idea what to expect. They had no idea what it would mean. What if God really was coming? No wonder all of Jerusalem was going out to see this man, John the Baptist, and to be baptized, repenting, turning from sin, and back to God before this one came. You want to be right if he's coming. You want to be right before him. John tells us that God himself is coming. And when he comes, all flesh will see the salvation of God. And you know what that means? It means that this salvation from God is available for all people. 
This is not something that is just for a select few, but is available for everyone, Jew and Gentile, free person and slave. And this is not something uh, that the Jewish people were uh, expecting either. They would, they, it would have been hard for them to believe that this is what John was saying. Because they alone, in their minds, were God's chosen people. Their world didn't know how to accommodate a God who might choose even more people for himself. But now John is crying out to prepare the arrival for God himself. And it doesn't matter anymore who you are. What matters is how you prepare your heart to receive the king when he comes. Okay. So far, John has told us who we are. Snakes, sinners who need a savior. And he's told us who's coming. God himself. And so what is John going to tell us to do about it? Well, look with me at verse 3. John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What must we do? do? John tells us we must repent. And now this is is a tricky thing. And if we're not careful, we're going to get this part wrong. Because look at what John tells the people when they ask him what they should do. This is verse 10 through 14. The crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And what we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now reading that, it would be easy for us to make the mistake of thinking that John is telling them what repentance looks like, what repentance is. And if you aren't sharing with those in need, then start sharing with them. If you're cheating other people, then stop cheating them. In other words, change your behavior. But that is not what repentance is. What, John, what is John describing there? We'll look at verse 8. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, or bear fruits in keeping with repentance. See, John isn't describing repentance. He's describing the fruits of repentance. You know what repentance really is? The Greek word is metanoia. And that doesn't mean to change what you're doing. It means to change your heart. And John says, if you have truly come here for this baptism of repentance, then your repentance, your change of heart, must therefore result in radically changed lives. Okay? And this is important because lots of people think that Christianity is nothing but a bunch of rules that you have to follow. And if you follow them well, then you're in. Now, if that's what you think Christianity is, then listen to me. That's not what Christianity is. That's just it. It's not about following rules. It's about where you put your trust in this life. When John says in verse 9 that even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, he's calling us to make sure our roots are where they should be. He's calling us to put our trust in Christ, not in ourselves, not in our doctrines, not in our church, not in our connections, not in our heritage, not in our good names. Not even our good behavior, but only in God and in his mercy and grace. That's where we should be putting our trust. So who are we? 
John tells us in his very gentle and kind way that we're a bunch of snakes, that we need a Savior. And that's good news because guess who's coming? John tells us that none other than God himself is coming. And when he comes, all flesh will see the salvation of God. When he comes, he brings salvation to anyone and everyone who is waiting for him and has prepared his or her heart to receive him. And what must we do about it? John tells us we've got to repent. And that is to turn away from everything we've ever relied on in this life and to rely solely on God and his mercy in Christ. When John the Baptist first came, no one knew what it would mean or how their lives would change. It had been hundreds of years since God had sent a prophet to his people, and they were filled with expectation and with hope. Are you filled with expectation and hope this Advent season? Are you expecting God to act in a powerful way in your life and in the lives of the people in in, in your family and friends? Or are you expecting that nothing much will happen? Nothing much will change. Christmas will simply come and go, and then life will go on as it always has. Well, my prayer for you and for me and for all of us is that we will be filled with great expectation about what God might do in our lives and in the lives of the people that we love, and that we prepare our hearts to receive him when he comes. I mean, if he can raise up for himself children out of the rocks, then think about what he can do with people. Think about what he could do with you and with me. Our King and Savior draweth nigh. O come, let us adore him. Amen. Please stand.